Galatians chapter 3 is a great, of course, in this whole book, Paul is answering this question. Really, the question is, is Christ, is Christ or faith in Christ sufficient for salvation? Or is it also necessary to keep the Mosaic law? Is faith in Christ sufficient? Is that enough for salvation? Or is it necessary to add keeping the law? Of course, the first two chapters, Paul there is defending the gospel which he preached. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he is giving proof or confirmation of what he defended, what he was defending in chapters 1 and 2. We come to chapter 3, and here he begins this chapter by asking the Galatians a series of questions. In the first five verses, he asks six, six questions, and he asks them, basically, does not your salvation experience confirm the truth of the gospel? In verses 6 through 14, he goes directly to the Old Testament and gives quotations from several Old Testament passages confirming salvation by faith in Christ alone. I'd like us to read, beginning at verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 18. Our text this morning will be found in verses 15 through 18, but let's get ourselves back in the context here. Beginning of verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as it was, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are the works of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. 
he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. We come to verses 15 through 18, and here there is a comparison and a contrast made between the covenant or the Abrahamic covenant and the law. The Abrahamic covenant and the law. What about the law? What about the Mosaic law? Of course, we know here, and he was speaking about the church at Antioch, Judaizers had come in and said, listen, you have to not only put your faith in Christ, but you also must keep the law if you're going to be truly saved. You want to have a right standing before God, you've got to keep the law. What about the Mosaic law? Well, in these verses, whatever the purpose of the law is, whatever the law's purpose, Paul says the law cannot make void or cannot disannul the Abrahamic covenant. And he's going to go here and prove it. And it's very logical. It's almost as if it's a, a lawyer here in a courtroom, and he's going to really present these facts and use fantastic logic. Of course, we don't find our way to faith through logic, but faith is logical. And what Paul is going to say here, he is going to help us to understand the fact that the Abrahamic covenant was not in any way made invalid by the giving of the law. Now, I'm going to read another translation of verses 15 through 18. You may have the translation in your hand. You may be looking at what we just read, but I want to read another translation. I want you to hear it again in other words. Beginning of verse 15. Brethren... And by the way, follow along in your Bible, regardless of what um, version you are using, because I want you to see the words and you'll see the comparison will help you understand. Brethren, I speak in the terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, quote, and to seeds, end of quote, as referring to many, but rather to one, quotation, and to your seed, end of quotation, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, what is Paul speaking about? Speaking about the Abrahamic covenant. You know the Abrahamic covenant was first given there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God gives this covenant to Abraham. 
makes this promise to Abraham. But here are these Jews coming in and saying, listen, you have to keep the law to be saved. Paul goes back in verse 6 of this chapter and reminds us of Abraham and how Abraham was considered to be righteous. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, in verses 15 through 18, he's talking about a covenant. In the beginning of verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Now, let me just caution you there. What Paul is not saying, he's saying, you know, this really isn't inspired. I'm just kind of giving you my opinion here as a man. Uh, no, that's not what he's saying. He says, I'm going to use an example of normal human relations. When we talk about a covenant or a contract, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a contract or a formal agreement. He says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men, even though it's a man's covenant. And then he talks about it. What are some covenants that we could think of? We talk about maybe a contract, a real estate contract, buying a house. You talk about a marriage contract. When two parties agree and they come together and give their vows, it is a binding legal contract. What Paul is saying is a ratified covenant. A ratified covenant cannot be changed after the fact. It cannot be changed unilaterally. There's not one party that can come back and say, well, you know what, I... I'd like to change the terms of my agreement. Well, I already signed it, and it's already been you know, sealed, stamped, whatever, but I, I want to change a contract. You don't get married, and then two or three weeks later come back and say, you know, I've decided that I want to change the contract here. Now, of course, Henry VIII, if you remember, uh, back in England, um, he uh, was married to you know, Catherine of Aragon, and he was concerned that he wasn't going to have a male heir to the throne, so he was looking elsewhere, and he decided, well... I need to get rid of this wife, but how do I do it? And he was a Catholic. Catholic Church would not let him out of his marriage. No, you can't annul your marriage. You have a contract. Well, we know what he did. He said, well, fine. I'll start my own church. And I'll be the Pope, or I'll be the chief officer of the church. And so he started the Church of England. It's the Anglican Church. It's a Catholic church with the Bishop of, Arcan uh, Bishop of Canterbury as the head. But here, he was the head of the church. He said, I'm changing the rules so I can annul my marriage and put away my wife and start again with a new one. There you go. So what did he do? You know, he broke his covenant. Of course, the Pope excommunicated him from the Catholic Church, but he decided he was going to find a way around this covenant. Well, folks, that's not the way covenants work. When you make a covenant, it cannot be changed unilaterally. Neither side can go back and change the terms of the contract. Now, it's very important because what is going on here in this book is Paul is going to make this argument that you cannot add works to a previously arranged agreement. You cannot add works to what God has promised. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, even if we're talking about men's covenants or men's contracts, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. 
once we have hammered out the agreements of the contract and we've signed our names and agreed to it, you can't go back and change the terms of the contract. It is in force. And if that is the way human contracts are, how much more can we expect God to honor His Word? Human contracts, legally binding contracts, cannot just be set aside. You cannot add conditions to a previously ratified contract or covenant. Turn with me back to the book of Joshua. Back in the Old Testament, Joshua. It's a very familiar story, chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, the children of Israel had finally come into the promised land. They defeated Jericho. They finally defeated Ai. And here they were, they're coming in, taking over the land. In Joshua chapter 9, I'll read you here this passage. Verse 3, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work wilily. How about that word? Wilily. You know, coyote, you know, wild E, coyote. Okay, they were crafty. That's what that word means. They were going to be crafty and cunning and deceitful. They did work wildly and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up, and old shoes. I mean, they went to Goodwill and got dressed up, okay? Old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, we become from a far country. Now, therefore, make ye a league with us, or a peace treaty. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, uh, Peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? What had the children of Israel been commanded? Get rid of everybody. Exterminate these people. Take over the land and, and destroy them all. Well, how do we know you don't live with us? Why should we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye? From whence came ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey and go to meet them. And say unto them, We are your servants. Therefore, now make ye a league with us. This is our bread. We took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now, behold, it is dry and it is moldy. And these bottles of wine which we filled were new. Behold, they be rent, and these are garments, and our shoes have become old by reason of the very long journey. And the men took of their victuals, and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a league with them, to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them, 
So they made a promise. Well, it came to pass at the end of three days after they had made a league with him that they heard that they were their neighbors. They're just around the corner. And that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Shaphira and Beeroth and kirjath And The children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the princes. But all the princes said unto all the congregation, Well, we have sworn unto, the Lord, unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princes said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation as the princes had promised them. What happened here? The children of Israel made a covenant. They made a legally binding agreement. They signed the papers that these people, they let them live, and they said, we are your servants, all right? They didn't ask counsel of the Lord, and all of a sudden they found them around the corner, next hill over. What in the world? What have you done? You lied to us. Oh, we heard of your reputation. We heard that you were going to destroy all the inhabitants of this land, and therefore we were afraid, so we tricked into making this treaty with us. And guess what? Children of Israel could not go back. God did not allow them to go back on their treaty. So what did they do? Well, they made them servants like they had agreed to. So for the rest of their days, they were the servants of the children of Israel. Now, do you remember there was a king that tried to get rid of them? Saul. Saul tried to kill all the Gibeonites, and God judged him very harshly because he was trying to end that agreement. But here it is. Once a treaty has been made, once a covenant has been made, it cannot be changed. You cannot unilaterally go back and change the terms of the agreement. Cannot add conditions. Of course, if human contracts are this way, how much more God's covenants? Well, let's note God's covenant with Abraham. In verses 15 through 18, note in verse 16, Now to Abraham, Abraham and his seed were the, what's the next word? Promises made. In verse 17, the end of the verse, it talks about the law coming 430 years after. It cannot disannul that it should make the what? Promise of none effect. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What was the Abrahamic covenant? It was a covenant that God made to Abraham, and God made a bunch of promises. That's all it was. What did God say to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You'll become great. You're going to be a great nation. All nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. He made these promises. There was nothing but promises. It was entirely unconditional. There were no requirements given to Abraham. There were no terms. Abraham didn't have anything to do. There was nothing for him to perform for God to keep his promises. Abraham just simply believed what God said. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant, and God gave his word. God said, I am going to do this. 
But there's something very interesting in this passage. And I wonder if you've noticed it before or ever been confused by it or wondered about it. Paul lets us know something here in this passage that we did not know before. And we would not have known just reading through Genesis and looking at the covenant that God made. Note verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. In other words, a singular seed. And to thy seed, which is Christ, the Messiah. Now, what in the world does that mean? He saith not into seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Paul lets us know here that the covenant promises were not just given to Abraham, but also to his seed. And here, Paul is not talking about Abraham's multitude of physical descendants, which he did have. He is talking about a singular seed. How many sons did Abraham have? Several. Several. There was Ishmael was first. Then there was Isaac. After Sarah died, Abraham remarried. There's Keturah. And there were more children born. You read about it. So when God made his covenant with Abraham, was it to all his seeds? How many children did Isaac have? Two. Jacob and Esau. Was God's covenant with Esau? No. Now, this is Paul's point. And here's what Paul is saying. I want you to note here in verse 16, if you, now if you're looking at your King James Version, it just says, he saith not and to seeds. Now that's capitalized. And to seeds. Those three words are very important. That is the quote from the Old Testament. And to, he saith not and to seeds. But as of one, what did he actually say? The quote is, and to thy seed. So we need to go back in the Old Testament and see where did God say this? Where does it say, and to thy seed? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13 and verse 15. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. All the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Note 
that it says, and to thy seed. You see that? And to thy seed. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed. Now, look at Genesis chapter 17 and verse 8. Genesis 17, verse 8, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed. There are those exact words again. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, Paul is referencing these two particular passages. Now, it's interesting to note, this is a side, a side comment, but the Gaza Strip, who does that belong to? To the Palestinians or to the Jews? It belongs to the Jews. It's a hotly contested piece of property over there. We were talking about this in our Family of the Night Devotions. You know, Israel is a little less than 8,000 square miles. It's roughly the size of either New Jersey or Massachusetts. It is a teensy little piece of land. Now, of course, all the land that God promised is larger than what they have right now. This is a very small piece of land over there. But man, it is the hotbed of all kinds of international conflict and always has been. But who does the land belong to? What did God say? He promised it to Abraham and to thy seed forever. A singular descendant of Abraham. Now, if those promises were made to Abraham and his seed, then those promises are still in effect, at least until that descendant comes. To thee and to thy seed. He says, and to thy seed forever. But who is the seed? Who is the seed? When you read the Old Testament, you have no indication that that seed is the Messiah. And here Paul lets us know in Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ, which is the Messiah. Wow. Now, this seed is identified as Christ, the Messiah. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, and this, by the way, this has a lot of bearing on what we're going over in our Sunday evening services. We talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We're talking about eschatology. Genesis 22. Note verses 16 through 18. Here is God reiterating this covenant. What has just happened? Abraham has taken Isaac up to Mount Moriah. He was going to slay him in obedience to what God had commanded. The angel stops Abraham and says, Now I know that you believe God. God speaks 
God calls Abram out of heaven the second time. In verse 16, he says, And he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies." Now, he's talking about the physical multiple descendants of Abraham. Verse 17 refers to the multitude of his seed. Then note, he goes on, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. In verse 18, Paul is referring to the seed. Paul is referring to this seed. In Genesis chapter 3, I mean in Galatians 3, what did Paul say? He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Look at verse 18 of Genesis 22. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. All nations of the earth be blessed. In the original language, in the translation, it is reflexive, which means this. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves. Now, can it be said that all of the nations of the earth have blessed themselves in the nation of the Jews? No, that's not what he's talking about. But salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through him, members of every nation, every tribe, every tongue have what? Have been blessed, have blessed themselves, have come to salvation and been blessed through this singular seed of Abraham, which is Christ. It's a very, the wording is so interesting there. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, or be blessed, it's reflexive, again, referring to themselves, because thou hast obeyed my voice. In your seed all nations shall bless themselves. Now, that same promise is the one that is spoken of in Galatians 3.16. The promise that God made was not only to Abraham. Did you know that? Well, you wouldn't know that unless Paul told us. And what does Paul tell us? There it says, the promise was not made only to Abraham, but it was also made to Christ. To Christ. In the Messiah, all nations shall be blessed. What was Abraham's blessing? What is Abraham's blessing of which we partake? Well, it's salvation. Look what he said back up earlier in Galatians chapter 3. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Verse 9. And then down in verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through 
Jesus Christ, through the Messiah, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What do we receive? The Holy Spirit. It's talking about our salvation. goes back to what Paul asked them at the beginning of this chapter. How did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then he gives the example of Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham that had nothing to do with Abraham's performance. It was completely by promise. God promised this, this, and this. It was a it was an unconditional covenant. There's nothing for Abraham to do. He just he didn't have to perform anything. He just believed God. Now, the law does not and cannot nullify or change the covenant. Coming of the law cannot change what God has promised. God's promises are not changeable. It was ratified. He gives two arguments. First, the first argument is in verse 17. He gives an argument of really just chronology. And this I say, Galatians 3.17, and this I say that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ... The law, which came 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise, or God's promise, to Abraham of none effect. Is it possible that God gave a law that would have voided or added conditions to the covenant that he made with Abraham? No way. No how. Not possible. God made a covenant, and God is not going back on His word. He's not adding conditions. A covenant, when ratified, is, is solid. You can't break it. And the law, when did the law come? He's talking about 430 years after. There's some discussion about, well, when is that 430 years talking about? Well, we're really measuring from when Jacob went down into Egypt. Remember there? Genesis 46. There, Jacob had word come back from his sons, hey, Joseph is still alive. What? Joseph is still alive? How could he be? You told me he was eaten by, torn up by uh, wild animals, and you showed me his ripped up coat covered in blood. Uh, yeah, well, Dad, we lied. Imagine that. Jacob says his heart fainted when he heard the news. But when they showed him all the stuff that came down from Egypt to transport him up there, he says his heart revived. He says, I'll go see Joseph before I die. Incredible story. And there, the night before he leaves to go up to Egypt, God appeared to Jacob and he reconfirms his promises. He says, your, your seed is going to be in this foreign country. Another land. It's not theirs. For 400 some years. And then I'll bring them out. So here Paul makes the argument from chronology. The law came much later than the covenant. God confirmed the covenant that he'd made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Restated in 13 and 15, 22, 
And then to Jacob as he goes into, the, into Egypt there. And then in verse 18, Paul says this, The covenant and the law are contrary to one another. They're not two sides of the same coin. They are absolutely contrary to one, the one to the other. Look what it says in verse 18. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by what? By promise. If the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, do you see what Paul has done? What's the context here? Again, is faith in Christ, is faith in Christ alone sufficient for salvation, or do we need to add the works of the law? The Judaizers were coming in, following Paul around, and saying, Listen, you Gentiles, if you truly want to be saved and accepted by God, considered justified and considered righteous, yes, you do have to believe in Jesus the Messiah, but you also have to keep the law. And if you don't, you cannot be saved. And Paul goes back, and what does he do? He says, let's go back and look at this promise. Let's look at the promise of salvation coming to the Gentiles as it was originally given to Abraham. It's a promise. And let me show you something, Paul says. It's not just a promise to Abraham. It's to his seed, Christ, the Messiah. And this blessing was given by what? Promise. What's it got to do with the law? Nothing. The law wasn't even around. There, was, there were no requirements for, for Abraham, no requirements for him to receive what God had promised. God promised, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. That was it. Abraham kind of waited, maybe he was waiting around for God to say, okay, now if you'll do this, this, no, God didn't say any of that. He just made these promises. What was there for Abraham to do? Nothing. He just said, okay, God, I, I believe what you say. Now, the inheritance, if that inheritance is a promise, then the law has no effect on it. But if the law is added, then it's no more a promise. There is no way you can add the law to the blessing of Abraham. You cannot add keeping the law to faith. You cannot add keeping the law as a prerequisite for receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith. I mean, this argument is just rock solid. It doesn't leave any wiggle room. It leaves no question in our minds. As to what salvation is, it is salvation by faith and by faith in Christ alone. That's why in the Reformation, it's in Christ alone. It is by faith alone. You can't add anything to it. You cannot add works to it. The covenant and the law are contrary to one another. They are not complementary. They can't work together. 
Because to have one excludes the other. And to have the other ruins the first. It's either promise or it's by works. And it can't be by both. Just as he says in Ephesians, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace and works, again, are contrary. They're not complementary. They don't mix. You don't work for a gift. If you do work for it, it is no longer a gift. It's either one or the other. It's not a combination of the two. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were trying to do, is present this false gospel, which is a combination of grace and works, which destroys the whole plan of salvation, which renders Christ's death needless, as he said at the end of chapter 2. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. What a waste. The inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The commands of the law would invalidate the unconditional promises that God gave to Abraham and to the Messiah. God gave it to Abraham by promise. And you can add this thought there, by promise what? Alone. Luther actually put that word in his translation of the New Testament. He added it because that was the big argument of the Reformation. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. You can't add anything to it. It's implied here. It's not in our translation, but it is absolutely the message here. By promise alone, you can't work for it. Now, he's going to go on in the next verses and still argue this point and talk about the purpose of the law. And we'll look at this more next week. But I wanted you to see here this passage. The Abrahamic covenant is not made void by the law. The Abrahamic covenant is still a valid covenant. It has not been revoked. It was a covenant given by God's promise. His promise to Abraham and to his seed as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. Now again, this will help us as we look at eschatology. We have to understand what God's promises are. And we'll talk about that more tonight in the evening service. I'm looking forward to that. It'll be very instructive for us. Now, salvation. Again, we, we tie this back into what Paul is trying to prove. And he is demonstrating that salvation is not by works. There's nothing that a man can do to earn salvation, to bring himself into God's favor by works. It has all been done by Christ. It is part of God's promise. And salvation is by faith alone. Faith alone, not of works. And anyone that would add works to salvation, Paul, of course, gave the strongest condemnation to there in chapter 1. Let him be accursed. 
Because what were the Judaizers? You said, well, the message of the Judaizers, it was still good. They said, believe in Jesus. Isn't that good? No, what they've done is added poison to it. Don't just trust in God, but trust in your works. Folks, that's not the gospel. And if you put any trust in your performance to earn favor with God, to achieve righteous standing before God, then your faith is misplaced. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not to trust in ourselves. We're not to think that we can do anything that would make us earn our salvation or get God to, you know, you just do your part and God will do his part and it'll all add up together. And No, it's all of God. All of God. Listen, good works for the believer are a result of salvation. Why do we do good works? Are we to do good works? Yes, we are. Are we commanded to? Yes, we are. But what is it? It is a response to what God has already accomplished. Why do I do good works? We love him because he first loved us. That's what John said. He didn't say we love him to get him to like us. We keep the law and if we do good enough, then God will accept us. No, that is not the gospel. The gospel is, hey, he loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who does God justify? He only justifies the ungodly. Those are the only kind of people that God will justify. He did not justify the Pharisees. Why? Because they thought they were righteous. They were not submitting to the righteousness of Christ. They were going about to establish their own righteousness, a righteousness of works. And God says, I don't accept that. And God did not justify the Pharisees. He justifies ungodly people who simply believe what he has said. What are you trusting in? Where's your trust? Is your trust in Christ alone? There's nothing you can add. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. Of course, if you're a Christian, then how would you live? How ought we to live? Well, serving the one who loved us and has granted us salvation. What's the only reasonable response? Here, Lord. And that's what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, because of God's mercy on your life, that you do what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's only reasonable because of what he has already done. Make sure that your faith is in Christ alone. What a wonderful passage this is to understand. And, and listen, God's word is clear, very clear on this matter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, Lord, the, the word of God. Lord, how you inspired Paul in this writing and how clear he makes it. Lord, we realize that our salvation, Lord, the blessing of Abraham comes to us by promise, not by works, not by our performance, but simply by your grace. Lord, may our trust be in you. May we, like Abraham, 
believe your word. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you revealed yourself to us in your word that we might know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.